Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. And uh, good morning, church. We're going to start down here uh, again this morning, Uh, but if you're visiting with us and think we're crazy, uh, welcome to you again. We don't always do do it like this, so... I want to welcome our our visitors and uh, those joining us online as well. Uh, I have the privilege this morning of welcoming a a new sister. Uh, I'm going to be a minute, Jackie. You can stand there the whole time if you want, but i I got to talk about her for a little bit. So, uh, but yeah, we'll we'll stand here. So, so I get the the privilege this morning of introducing a a new sister uh, to to Lafayette, who is uh, formally placing membership with us. This is Nyla Hinson. Many of you are, uh, are familiar with Nyla. Part of that's because she's been attending here for probably four years. Uh, off, off and on, and then for the last two, she, she's been here every Sunday, dating back in, into the, the online times, and then uh, last year and a half that, that we've been open. So Nyla is, is uh, familiar to, to many of you, uh, but we've been having some conversations, and she's uh, uh, wanting to kind of cement this this formal relationship with with us crazy folks here at, at Lafayette. So, uh, Nyla is uh, Nyla is one of the most godly and spirit led people I have known in my entire life, and uh, she also makes really good salsa. <laughs> uh, and that is not as important as being spirit led, but it is a close second. So. Uh, Nyla has many wonderful traits uh, spiritually and uh, in the garden, putting those tomatoes to good use. So um, let's see, Nyla uh, has, has, some of you may know her as someone who has a, quite a bit of stewardship over our food pantry here at Lafayette, working with several others in this area and with Hitch and, and with me, and does so much uh, behind the scenes and reaching out to our neighbors here, uh, here uh, around the local area, and loving on some families that, that may never grace uh, grace the, the front door here, although some some uh, some have, and some are even here this morning. Hello, Miss Sue. Um, and uh, and so she has been serving behind the scenes and doing ministry far before we might have officially thrown her into the the directory or anything. So again, many of you are familiar with her, but. Uh, Nyla is, is married to Ken, who, who you'll see around here uh, every once in a while. Uh, many of you have met him as well. Got a big family, uh, kids, grandkids, and uh, the, the whole nine yards. Uh, Nyla's family over the last year has had a lot of uh, physical health struggles, and so uh, many of you have prayed for, for different members of her family. Jackie uh, mentioned her her family member this this morning who's battling cancer, and I do have permission to share. Uh, some of you know this, but uh, Nyla has had her own uh, physical health battle over the years with this foot of hers and uh, this boot that she likes to kick me with. Um, <laughs> and uh, actually, again, permission to share that on August 17th, is that right? August 17th, she's actually going to have part of her leg amputated um, coming up here in about a month and a half. And so this has been uh, physical and a spiritual battle for Nyla for many years, and uh, this is kind of the, the culmination of that, uh, but if you talk to her, you will uh, receive nothing nothing but the, the presence of God as, as she processes this uh, the struggle in her life, and, and as she does in other things, she's, she's glorified 
uh, God through that. So we're praying for Nyla uh, as she comes up upon that surgery, and I'd encourage you guys to, to be doing that. We'll, we'll begin putting that in the prayer list this week. And again, many of you know her, but if you haven't, uh, please introduce yourself, and I'm sure she'd even be happy to, to share some more of her, her story with you of, of this, this foot of hers um, and, and how that has, has brought her closer to, to God over the years. So just a formality, uh, but, but Jackie is going to pray over our sister Nyla this morning as we welcome her into the family here at Lafayette. Lord God, we thank you for blessing us at Lafayette. You've blessed us in so many ways. You bless us with new family members who want to partner with us in spreading your kingdom. You're now blessing us with Nyla Henson. You know her love for you and your word. She's been a blessing us for some time with her work in our food pantry. Her love for people and her desire to serve are known to all who, who have met her. We pray she sees Lafayette as a place where we can all work together in serving our community and sharing your word. In Jesus' blessed name, I pray. Amen. All right, well, we are, uh, are jumping back in this morning to our, our new sermon series out of the, the first half of, of First Kings that we're, we're calling The Crown. And uh, I do want to say, if you missed last week, I'm, I'm not a big promoter of uh, miss, uh, catch the sermon from last week when you were at Disney World or whatever. But when it's a, a new series, uh, when it's a new series, I think I, I tend to sort of share some of the reasons uh, why we're doing this, and because First Kings 1 to 14 may be a little bit out of the ordinary, I do encourage you, if you missed last week, go back and just listen to the first 10 minutes or so, and I share some of the reasons I'm excited for this uh, series, and, and uh, a reason or two for why I think it's important for us to, to study uh, less flashy uh, parts of Scripture, of Holy Scripture, like, like the book of, of First Kings. So, uh, if you would, open up your Bibles, open up your Bible apps, as I said last week, this is going to go a lot smoother because of how much uh, text we have to cover and also uh, that this is, is more uh, unfamiliar to you. Uh, go a lot smoother if you have it open in front of you and if you can, it's good practice every week, uh, but if you can be following along, doing some of your own reading as, as I do some of my own uh, summarizing of, of these passages and, and, and guiding us through it. So uh, in, the, in the very first part of this chapter, we've got a few different sections here, uh, we have kind of a, a classic uh, passing of, of the torch scene, uh, in this case from father to son and also from, from king to king. So Solomon is already technically the king. We saw in the last verse of chapter 1 that the narrator refers to him as, as King Solomon for the first time. But his father, the, the former king, uh, David, who we know a lot about, is about to die. And before he dies, he, he passes on uh, some final... Uh, a, a final charge, and, and then some other final words we'll look at. And we read all of this from uh, verse 2 down to verse 9. So let's read the final charge from verse 1 to, to verse 4 again that Josh read for us. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go all the way, uh, to go the way of all the earth. In other words, we all die. Uh, 
he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. We've had some discussion this morning of promises already, which is great. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So David's final charge here uh, to Solomon may sound a little bit familiar to you, uh, even if you can't quite put your finger on it, and it may be familiar for a couple of reasons. The, the first is that this is a very similar charge, almost the same charge in, in certain parts, to the one that God gave uh, Joshua after the death of Moses, and as God is charging Joshua to, to pick up where uh, Moses left off. So a different time of Israelite history, but a very similar handing uh, of the baton, uh, Moses to Joshua, David to Solomon, and we have really similar language. And that similarity is because uh, both of these charges are rooted in the language of, of the book of, of Deuteronomy. So the, the authors of First Kings, really the authors all the way back even uh, to the book of, of Joshua, really want us to connect all of these later uh, historical happenings. They want us to, to connect these leaders and, and the people that we follow over the course of the Old Testament. They want us to connect uh, their, their uh, leadership and, and their daily living back to the, the covenant guidelines that, that God had laid out for God's leaders and God's people all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. So I'm going to uh, have them throw a quote up here. And this is a little risky because it's, it's actually straight from a commentary, so it's not like one of the, the flashy quotes. Um, but I, I want you to see how rooted this language here and this final charge that's very beautiful, uh, verses 2 to 4. You really like probably some of the language, but most of the language comes from, uh, from the, the book of Deuteronomy. So this is the quote. The author or authors of First and Second Kings, we're, we're talking about, were deeply influenced by the book of Deuteronomy, and they sought to provide Israel with an explanation of its past. What do we, how do we think about these kings in terms of the theological program outlined in that book, in the book of, of Deuteronomy? And this is clearly signaled, for example, in the opening section of David's parting speech to Solomon. That's what Josh read for us, where the, the language closely parallels the following phrases from Deuteronomy. So we're citing verses from Deuteronomy but this language shows up in this charge from, from David to his son Solomon. Uh, I'll just read these, but you can see them up on the screen. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, chapter 11. Walking in his ways, chapter 8. Keeping all his statutes and commandments, chapter 6. That you may prosper in all you do, chapter 29. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, chapter 9. And then a really important one for us this morning, uh, with all your heart and with all your soul. I love God ties things together, and Brett did, not, uh, Brett did not pay me, or I did not pay him in regards to the offering. Uh, but we're going to talk about hearts a little bit this morning, and, and Brett has already uh, pay, paved the way for us. And so David charges his son Solomon, who's going to be the, the new king of, of Israel and, and uh, of Judah, to be faithful to the covenant that, that God had made with, yes, with David, but the covenant that God had made with 
with his people going all the way back to the, to the, the law that is uh, restated in, in the book of Deuteronomy. So he charges Solomon, and if you look at verse 4, he charges all who are going to come after Solomon to walk faithfully before God with all of their heart and all of their soul. That's going to be the true test of Solomon's kingship. And that's really the, the, the true test for all of us. Whether, whether we're kings at not, the qu- kings or not, the question is, are we going to walk faithfully before God with all of our heart and all of our soul? And so, David, in these first few verses, you go, man, that's a great, that's a great father-to-son speech, king-to-king, drawing from the book of Deuteronomy here in verses 1 to 4. And then down in verses 10 and 11, we get this formula that, that David uh, dies, that he reigned for 40 years, and, and all that jazz. Now, you may have noticed that I did not have uh, Josh read verses 5 through 9 uh, in, in the scripture reading. And I'm calling this verses 1 to 4 David's final charge to Solomon, but it's actually not his final words to his son Solomon because he gives the wonderful charge rooted in the book of Deuteronomy. And then he says, actually, I, I have a few more things to tell you, my son. Uh, and these are the sorts of the Bible that I, I get a little interested in. So let's see the actual final words of the former King, Sol- uh, King David to his son Solomon, beginning in verse 5 through verse 9. Now you yourself know what Joab uh, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner and Amasa, he killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt around his waist and the sandals of his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Do you all know what he's asking him to do there? Okay, I think so. This is not maybe not the way we would... Uh, uh, Put that in our own words, but I think you understand what he's asking him to do. Verse 7 gets a little bit uh, cheerier, but show kindness to the sons of, uh, I forgot to uh, pronunciation check some of these guys, uh, so I'm going to struggle this morning, but uh, the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. So he gives his final charge. He says, hey, you got to kill that guy, uh, but be nice to this guy. And you go, okay, you know, one in one, it's okay, we all have enemies, we all have friends. But no, actually, we got one more thing here. Verse 8, and remember, you also have with you Shemai, son of Gerah, the Benjamite, who called down bitter curses on me the day I, I went uh, to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to the death by the sword. David said, I will not put you to death by the sword. Uh, pronouns matter in, in uh, the Bible. I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. And so, what are David's actual final words? Maybe not his final charge, but his uh, final uh, request to his son uh, Solomon. His final words are, kill my old enemy, Uh, be nice to my old friend, and kill my other old enemy. And David's uh, final charge, we read verses 1 to 4, is very beautiful. It's rooted in covenant faithfulness. And we understand that side of David, and we can see his heart coming out uh, in, in those final words. And that we can also see kind of another aspect of David in, in these final requests. 
for revenge, which makes interpreting uh, a passage like this, as New Testament Christians, it makes interpreting a passage uh, like this a little bit more complicated. And, and to demonstrate that, uh, I, I want to point out that we have verses 2 to 4, and we have verses 5 to 9, uh, and the request for revenge, not the call to f- uh, covenant faithfulness, is what occupies the rest of this chapter. And so David doesn't say, uh, here's your final call to f- covenant faithfulness, and then the rest of chapter 2 is, so Dave, uh, Solomon set up a prayer routine, and he, dis- you know, he discerned this, and he did good deeds over here. The beginning of his reign, uh, a whole long chapter that, that we're going to look at this morning, uh, is occupied with uh, Solomon carrying out uh, the requests of, of his father David and also a- adding some of his own enemies uh, onto the list. So again, this can be uh, kind of difficult for us to, uh, to interpret uh, and, and make sense of. And we're going to do a little bit uh, more of that as, as we go along. So what we have then is that from verse 13 down to verse 46, I know we're not going to read all that verse for verse, but for 30-something verses, we essentially read about Solomon dealing with four enemies, not two enemies, but four enemies in pretty quick succession. So he, he deals with two, I'm saying deals with, that's a little bit of a euphemism, but he, he, uh, he deals with two of his own enemies, which David did not tell him to do, but I wonder where he, he picked up on how to do that. So he deals with two of his own enemies, and then he deals with uh, the two enemies that, that David requests him to, to kill. And... Uh, the, Again, it's, it's difficult to interpret this. The two things I, I kind of want you to think about as, as we look at these episodes, uh, I do think there is a, an element of justice in this. So don't hear me wrong. I'm not offering a full critique of any of this. Uh, some of these uh, dudes that Solomon takes out were bad guys, and they had done things uh, to the family of David, to, to God's royal family, uh, and they had done certain things that did, um, that did uh, deserve uh, recompense. Now, we might not approach that the same way today, uh, knowing what we know about Jesus and what he told us about enemies, but some of this we can understand as, as repaying wrongdoing with justice. So on the one hand, that's how you could interpret this a little bit more charitably. On the other hand, uh, you, you can pretty easily see here some hints of revenge. And you can pretty easily see some hints here of how David, in his final words, and also Solomon, in his first actions, are behaving in a way that makes them really no different than any other earthly king in, in any other earthly kingdom. And so the question is, is First Kings chapter 2 painting for us a portrait of royal righteousness and justice that you might hope for, or is it painting for us uh, a portrait of, of kingly vengeance and power consolidation? And I, I think the, the truth is there's probably an element of, of both of those things. But you can decide for yourself as, as we go along. So let's begin reading in, in verse 13. This is the first episode. We'll spend a little bit, just a little bit more time on episode one and three and catch a, a few extra details and hit episode two and four pretty quickly. But even saying that, we're not going to go into all the backstory, all of how we got here. And so some of you uh, additional, you know, heavy duty students can do some digging around and, and, and flesh this out a little bit more. So uh, the first enemy that, that Solomon is going to deal with is Adonijah. And if you were here last week, you know a little bit about Adonijah. So let's, let's read for a bit in verse 13. Now Adonijah, the son of uh, Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, 
As a reminder, Adonijah is a half-brother of Solomon. So David is his dad, but he had, he had a different mom. And Bathsheba asked him, do you come peacefully? That seems like a reasonable question, uh, given, given how he behaved last week. And Adonijah answered, yes, peacefully. And then he added, but, but I, I do have something to say to you. And she says, you, you may say it. And so he says, as you know, the kingdom was mine. Uh, all Israel looked to me as their king, but things changed, and the kingdom has gone to my brother, uh, for it has come to him from the Lord. Now, I don't really buy anything he's saying there. I don't agree with his version of events, and I think he's almost taking the Lord's name in vain uh, based upon the other actions. Uh, but, but this is his version of events that he comes to, to Bathsheba with. And then in verse 16, he says, Now, I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And she says, You may make it. So he continued, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba goes to see King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. The king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne uh, brought in for the king's uh, mother, and she sat down at his right hand. So you've got uh, Solomon, Bathsheba right here. She's bringing the request to him from uh, Adonijah. She says, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king replied, make it, my mother. I will not refuse you, which is never a good thing to say before you hear someone's request. This happens all the time in the Old Testament. It kind of drives me crazy. Why do you guys say that? Um, And then in verse 21, she says, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. Now, at the end of verse 21, if you haven't read this story in a long time, which I presume to be the case for most of us. And if you don't go ahead and read verse 20, 22, if you're not familiar with this, you probably don't see why this would be all of that, that, that big of a, a deal at this point, why it's such a big request. Why would Adonijah be asking uh, for Abishag in, in the first place? And why would Solomon or anyone really, really care if he does? But as the rest of the story unfolds, and if you continue to read, you realize that at least... In Solomon's eyes, this is indeed a very big deal because he gets angry and he gets angry very quickly. And I I think what's going on is Solomon essentially interprets Adonijah's request via Bathsheba as a a renewed claim to to the throne. Uh, Again, you have to remember from last week that this is the same guy who was trying to become king and then Solomon said, hey, you better behave yourself. And he said, oh, I'll behave myself. And so I think Solomon is interpreting uh, these actions as, as uh, Adonijah trying to, to win back the throne. Now, again, it's like, well, what, what does that have to do with, uh, with Abishag or whatnot? Well, I conveniently left out the, the very beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1 last week. That actually is not because I'm afraid to talk about some of the details, which many of you accused me of. Uh, but it's because I wanted to save it for right now. So who is Abishag the Shunammite? You know, what is Adonijah trying to do? Well, if you go back and read, I think the first four or five verses, it's a little teaser scene at the begin, the very beginning of this strange book, and it really only becomes relevant uh, here in, in chapter 2. And so Abishag was basically this young uh, concubine-like figure that was, was given to David in his old age, um, I think as a mixture of here's a female companion and also for her to take care of him. And the text makes it very clear uh, that she might have took care of him in, in like a medical way or helped him out or whatever, but David did not know her. That's that word yada that we've talked about in, in church before. So 
It makes it very clear David did not yada her, uh, but this is still some sort of concubine relationship. And so flash forward a chapter later, Adonijah is upset that he's not the king anymore. He wants to be the king. He's saying, how can I be the king? And I, I guess there's a tradition essentially that if you can lay claim to the, the king's concubines, then maybe you have your own claim to the throne. And so Solomon, for better or for worse, he interprets these actions of Adonijah as him uh, using Abishag to, to make a, a renewed claim to, to the throne. And he is not very happy with that action. So I don't really think any of that is, is super apparent to us with our cultural eyes because we don't even really have categories for it. But I think it's pretty clear when you study through it that that's, that's what's going on here. Um, so in verses 23 to 25, Solomon rants about Adonijah. And then he tells his guy, Beniah, it's never good when Solomon tells Beniah to do something. And he says, you know, go, go take out Adonijah. And a few, few verses into 1 Kings 2, uh, down in verse 25, Adonijah, Solomon's main uh, rival to the throne, has, has been killed. So regarding that cliffhanger from last week then, where we saw the first time Adonijah acted up, and then David, I, I think my language was David, basically said, uh, behave yourself or I'm going to kill you. Uh, David did not interpret this as good behavior. He interpreted uh, him weaseling his way through, through Bathsheba, asking for Abishag as a claim to the throne, and, and we see how, how David responds. And uh, all it took then for, for David to secure his throne uh, a little bit further was to be willing to kill uh, his half-brother who asked his mom if he could marry his dad's kind of concubine. Uh, and they say the Bible's boring, right? But that, that's the, the scene here that we have uh, here in the middle of 1 Kings chapter 2. So that's the one I wanted to spend the most time with because for whatever reason, that's how 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 opens up with this long extended narrative about Solomon and Bathsheba and Adonijah and, and Abishag. So uh, the second of four episodes is, is a lot quicker. Uh, in verses 26 and 27, Solomon also does away with uh, Abiathar the priest who was one of the guys that had helped uh, Adonijah in, in chapter 1. So he's not a direct uh, rival to the throne. He's, he's a priest. He's not a, he's not a king figure, but he had helped support uh, his rival's claim to the throne. Uh, and so Solomon is, is not happy with him. That being said, Abiathar, the text tells us, had, had previously helped, uh, had helped his father David. And so Solomon uh, lets him live, unlike he does with all of these other enemies. So he he cans him from the priesthood, essentially. He says he can't be a priest anymore, at least for our people. And he, he banishes him from, from the area. And so Abiathar uh, gets uh, more merciful treatment than Adonijah does. And he gets a much more merciful treatment than the next character in the next episode uh, in the story, which is Joab. And this episode begins uh, in, in verse 28 uh, down to, to 35. So Joab had also joined these same two guys, Adonijah and uh, Abiathar, in the battle for the throne in chapter 1. So he was an enemy of Solomon's, and we could have expected that Solomon would want to deal with him as he had dealt with the first two. But Joab also has the luxury of being one of the, the two guys back from the beginning of, uh, of this chapter that David had told Solomon to kill. When I say told him to kill, let me be exact with that request again. Uh, do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. In other words, don't let this guy die of natural causes in old age. Find a way sooner than later 
to take care of, of Joab. And so Joab is, is the double enemy of both David and Solomon. And he finds out what happened to Adonijah. He finds out what happens to Abiathar. And I think he's going, this is not, uh, this is not going to go very well for, for Joab. And so what he does is he flees to the altar. And he, he grabs the horns of the altar. And we saw this last week because this is what Adonijah had done just a few verses uh, before, before this scene. And we talked about that a little bit. Essentially what's going on is, is that Joab is fleeing to a holy place. And he's fleeing to the altar. He's grabbing the, the horns of the altar, which there's some, uh, some stuff that that represents. And in doing so, he is, is, is assuming that surely Solomon will not kill him right there on the altar. And in fact, Solomon sends Benaiah, again, never good. Benaiah comes and he says, hey, get away, you know, get away from the altar. And he says, I'm not gonna, I am not going to get away from this altar. So he goes back to Solomon and he says, I don't care if he gets away from the altar. So Benaiah goes back. Joab makes the wrong assumption. And the text implies, it doesn't say it explicitly, but the text implies that Solomon ends up having Benaiah killed right there next to the altar while holding on to it. Now, Solomon, uh, according to the law, I think Exodus 21, although someone had to check me on that, I think it's Exodus 21, is not technically supposed to do what he just did. Uh, this is him, him breaking the, the law that David had just asked him uh, to follow. However, what did David also do? He said, go deal with, with Joab, right? So we, we see a mix here of David's dual advice and his son trying to, to carry it out and not really being able to do so. So according to the law here, someone who has accidentally committed violence is able to flee to the altar and they can cling to it and nobody is supposed to be able to touch them. But it's supposed to protect those that have accidentally committed violence, not anyone who has actually committed murder. Now, if someone has committed murder, what you're supposed to do is pull them away from the altar and then you, you can kill them. And so what, what we have going on here is that, yes, uh, Solomon is, is very likely breaking the law here. He's, he's transgressing the law in his vengeance, saying, I don't care if he won't walk away. I don't want to wait, you know, however long it would take him to just give up and walk away. He says, just, just kill, him, kill him right there. So we interpret this in a way where we can see Solomon's need for, for vengeance overwhelm his, his desire to, to follow the law. But it's also a, an indictment of Joab. We're not going to get into that backstory because it would take way too long. But Joab is not faultless here. Joab had, had harmed uh, the family of David on, on a number of occasions. And so I think in Solomon saying, nope, we're killing this guy on the spot, he is saying, Joab, you're a murderer. You're not, you're not free of, of, uh, of anything here. And so uh, the method is, is messed up. And, and again, we see Solomon's uh, vengeance here, I, I think. But, but we also see someone who had committed a, a number of injustices uh, having those those turned on his on his head so that's the third episode it's pretty intense again it's in our bibles there's some some younger kids here but uh the key to the story is hold on to that altar but if you're a really bad guy it may not matter anyways so uh that's the third episode then the fourth one's also pretty quick um and essentially this shammai figure who's probably less familiar to you even uh he uh, david had also asked solomon to to wisely take this guy out once he had an opportunity. And so Solomon's approach is to bring Shemaiah in and say, hey, uh, you, can't, you can't leave Jerusalem or I'm going to kill you. So he does the exact same thing he does with Adonijah. He says, behave yourself or else. And it's not that, you know, 
I mean, you don't want to be banished to Jerusalem forever, maybe, but he says, yep, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go anywhere. Sounds good. And what do you know? Uh, Shammai also misbehaves. At one point, he, he leaves Jerusalem, and then we pick up this story in verse uh, 42 to the end of the chapter. So he leaves Jerusalem. Solomon finds out about it. The king summoned him and, and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you on the day you leave to go anywhere else? You can be sure you will die. At that time you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? The king also said to Shammai, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed. Speaking in third person. But King Solomon will be blessed. And David's throne will remain secure or established before the Lord forever. Then the king gave the order to Benaiah, and he went out and struck Shammai down, and he died. And this chapter, uh, composed primarily, uh, not necessarily of covenant faithfulness, but of of these killings, uh, wraps up like this. The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hand. And I would think so, because he pretty much just took out everybody that that could prevent uh, the, the kingdom from being firmly established in in his hands. And so this is uh, kind of a, a crazy chapter. Uh, next week, as we drive forward to some of the more familiar Solomon stuff, you're going to be like, oh yeah, he asked, he asked God for wisdom. We're going to get to some of those more familiar stories. But, but I want us to see the uncertain foundation that, that this kingship got off, uh, got off to as we see this mixed advice from David and, and we see a son struggling to be faithful to God and also to, to secure and establish his throne. One commentator summarized this chapter like this. He says, when David names Solomon as his successor and dies, Solomon consolidates his power with a ruthless purge of his opposition. I think that's a little bit of an unfair rendering because I do think there's more going on here in terms of uh, repaying wrongdoing, uh, but I don't, I don't think that's far off in uh, Solomon behaving like you would expect any worldly king to behave in, in any worldly kingdom. So let me point out this little word here, establish, and we'll uh, tie bow on this uh, a little bit and, and apply it briefly. Uh, the, the human result of all of these crazy events and all of these killings and all of this political maneuvering is that the throne is firmly established. And that, I think, is the point that the uh, author of this chapter is, is trying to get across. That word established, the same Hebrew word, if you look, pa- pops up in verse 12. It popped up in verse 24, and it pops up in verse 45 and verse 46. It may be translated a different way. But the point that's trying to get across is that through these different events, the throne of Solomon is established. And again, I think as Christians, the question that we kind of have to wrestle with is at what cost was this throne established? This is one of the difficult challenges of human kings trying to serve under Yahweh uh, as king. Because God, as a king, can do whatever he wants, and he can show mercy to whoever he wants, and he can uh, cast judgment on whoever he wants. And we trust God's ability to discern right from wrong, and and we uh, trust God that he's going to be fair in his judgments. But it gets a little trickier when we start talking about these human kings like, like Solomon, because King Solomon is not God. And so it's not always clear when he's uh, executing righteousness and justice on behalf of God 
and in support of the throne of David from which a Messiah is going to come. And when Solomon is just acting with revenge or when he's just trying to consolidate power for selfish motives or when he's just acting out of anger against a half-brother who has been driving him crazy. And those are the sorts of things that we, again, would expect any worldly king to do in any worldly kingdom, not, not in God's kingdom. So regardless, I, I think of how we make sense of his actions. And if this was like a class or something, I'd be interested to, to get you guys' takes. Do you read it more on this end of the spectrum or more on this end of the spectrum? Uh, but, but regardless, uh, the, the throne is established. Solomon's crown is, is secure. And these next couple of weeks, what we're going to see is Solomon's throne at its finest. We're going to get the version uh, of Solomon who, is, who seems to be just and righteous and fair and we're going to get the version of Solomon who, who asks for wisdom and, and then who acts wisely and, and who prospers in all he does and who builds this, uh, builds this uh, temple for, for his God. But there are hints, even in these earliest chapters, of the sorts of mistakes that Solomon is going to make later. There are hints of the sorts of sins that are, that are going to, to catch up to Solomon later. There are hints at the fact that Solomon is, is not walking faithfully before God with all his heart uh, and with, with all of his soul, which is the call that we see back in, in verse 4, which makes the, the following reflection, I think, a, a telling quote about the trajectory of Solomon's life. Uh, someone wrote, Solomon was a king who was great when he obeyed God and depended on God for wisdom but whose reign ended in tragedy, spo- I mean, spoiler, but whose reign ended in tragedy as he departed from God's ways and worshipped other gods. And that is what makes Solomon not so different from the rest of us. When we obey God and, and when we depend on God for, for wisdom, we are prosperous and, and our life flourishes, not in like a prosperity gospel uh, sort of way, but, but God certainly blesses those who obey him and God uh, prospers those who, who call upon him and are, are faithful to his covenant. But like Solomon, when we depart from God and when we depart from God's ways, trouble begins to brew in our spiritual lives. And that trouble in our spiritual lives often carries over into these other uh, aspects of, of our lives. And we see that happening to David over the course of, of his reign, even a man after God's own heart. And we certainly see that happening to, to Solomon even more quickly. And so I think we're called uh, today, just like Solomon was called, to follow that charge, that the, the first charge, not the second charge. Joab's dead. Don't go and do anything. Uh, but to follow that, that first charge that David gave uh, to Solomon, rooted in these words of Deuteronomy, to walk in obedience to God and to walk faithfully before God with all our heart and soul. We're not bound specifically by the law of Moses in the way they were, and we're certainly not kings of, of any nation, but we ultimately have the, the same challenge in front of us today and the same questions we have to ask ourselves. Are we going to be obedient to God, and are, and are we striving to walk faithfully before God with, with all our hearts and with all our souls? And, and to Brett's point, this is ultimately uh, a matter of our hearts. Solomon wasn't going to be remembered as a righteous king because he took out his enemies successfully or because he accumulated wealth or because he built a fancy building or because he came up with nice wise sayings 
Solomon was, was only going to be uh, considered and remembered as a righteous king, as a man after God's own heart, like his father David, to the extent that he walked faithfully before God with all his heart and with all his soul. And as, uh, as Keith shared with us last week, um, Solomon is, is Solomon, but, but we remember uh, servants of God, like, like Mary Joy, because she walked faithfully uh, before God with all her heart and with all her soul. And as Keith said, she wrote in her Bible, why would we want to be remembered for anything else? Who wants to have built the, the temple? Who wants the wise sayings? Who wants to consolidate power when we can be remembered for following God uh, with all our heart and with all our soul? Uh, most of you know this. I lost a, a friend this week, um, and I'm going to remember him as a man who followed God with all of his heart and soul. He did other things, like Solomon did, like Mary Joy did, like many others have done. But I'm going to remember him as a man who walked faithfully before God with all his heart and with all his soul. And I wouldn't want to remember him for any other reason either. And so none of us are kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, none of us are relate to God in maybe the same way that, that Solomon did. But I can see this story of Scripture unfolding where God is placing a call on Solomon's life, and it's the exact same call that he places on my life and he places on the life of every single one of us here this morning. And the question that we have to answer is, are you going to walk faithfully before God with all your heart and soul? And that's what we have to decide for ourselves, each and every one of us, and that we have to decide uh, together as, as a church family. So uh, Jackie and Carol are going to head back to the prayer room. Uh, thanks for sticking with me this morning. Next couple weeks get a l- little bit easier uh, as we think about wisdom and building projects and some of those beautiful passages in first kings but let's be people who walk faithfully uh, before god with all our hearts and with all our souls let's stand and sing